you will open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. You're already in the book of Psalms, so if you turn backwards a couple of chapters, you'll be in Esther. Today we're going to be in Esther 2, verses 1 through 18. Esther 2, 1 through 18. And the title of this sermon is Beauty in the Bachelor. Most of you are probably familiar with the story of Cinderella. It's a story of a young orphan girl who magically and amazingly ends up being chosen by the handsome prince to be his wife and live happily ever after. Esther 2 is not that story. It's not a story of love, romance, or good feelings. Uh, I mentioned to some of you this week that I've been reading several children's Bibles and their depictions of this story, just to kind of see how they did it. And while I understand why, children's Bibles tend to whitewash this story completely, almost making it into a Cinderella story where the young and beautiful Esther gets chosen by the king or given a rose like the bachelor. Again, that's not what happens in Esther 2. This part of the story is dark. It's grotesque, actually. But I think if we try to whitewash it this morning, we'll miss out on something important that God's trying to show us about the world and about his involvement in it. So here's the thesis up front. Here's what I believe the story is trying to tell us on the whole. That we live in a dark world and sometimes take part in it and in its darkness. Yet, God still uses us to accomplish his plans and to bring light from the darkness. With that in mind, let's dive into our text. And since we've already read the text, let's begin by taking a look at the main characters. Look at verse 1. It says, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Remember, in chapter 1, we learned that Ahasuerus was gearing up for a war with Greece. He threw this massive 187-day party to show off his power and his wealth and to show everyone that he, unlike his father, could whip Greece's tail. That all happened, as verse 3 of chapter 1 told us, in the third year of his reign. We just read in verse 16 of our text that this scene in chapter 2 takes place in the seventh year of his reign. This is an easy detail to overlook. But four years have passed since Ahasuerus got drunk and angrily booted his wife Vashti out of his presence. Four years. Well, what's happened since then? The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know from extra-biblical history that Ahasuerus went out and got absolutely smoked by Greece. He lost and had to come home with his tail between his legs. That's where chapter 2 picks up. 
about four years after his drunken, sinful decree that banished his wife forever. And look at what the text tells us. It says, he remembered Vashti. Remembered Vashti. Typically in scripture, when the word remembered is used, it's typically talking about God remembering something good. What the author seems to be hinting at here in Esther 2 is that Ahasuerus isn't drunk anymore. He's sober and remorsefully remembering what happened in chapter 1, four years ago. He's remembering his wife with regret for his actions. But the author also lets us in on his posture toward these events. Look what it says. He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Did you catch that? It's missing some important words, isn't it? No, I'm not saying the Bible is actually missing words. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. But what key words should be in the king's remembering? By him, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her by him. In the way he's remembering, even in his remorse, he's almost passive unaccountable for his actions. Can we just stop for a moment and admit that we often do the same thing with our own sin? It's so easy to be remorseful about sin and to see ourselves almost as innocent bystanders, not responsible for what happened. Friends, that's not repentance. True Christian repentance confesses sin. Confession is agreeing with God. It, it takes ownership of your actions or your thoughts. It admits wrongdoing before God and clings to the blood-bought forgiveness of Jesus Christ. What I want us to see is that Ahasuerus is regretful and remorseful, but not repentant. We even see that the next sinful scheme that's concocted pleased the king in verse 4. There's an ocean of difference between worldly remorse and godly repentance. Godly repentance means turning away from sin and turning to God. Repentance, in Ahasuerus' case, would have looked like a sincere admission of guilt an ownership of it, and a reconciliation with Vashti. But that's not what we see, is it? Look at verses 2 through 4. It says, Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. This is where the story begins to get dark. Notice what's going on here. These young men advise the king to send officers into all of his kingdom to forcibly round up all 
of the beautiful young virgins to be violated for the king's pleasure. This is abduction and abuse by a powerful man. This idea pleased the king. And don't miss the qualifications for the women that they're rounding up. Beautiful, young virgins. No concern for character. Strictly appearance-based. Strictly for the king's pleasure. Behold the way of the world. Extra-biblical sources tell us that on the low end, they rounded up 400 women. And on the high end, 1,400. This isn't a beauty pageant. It's not like all the eligible women in the kingdom get to sign up and participate. They have no choice. This isn't an airbrushed version of reality, is it? The Bible is a real book and highlights the reality of sin and brokenness in the world, both then and now. The world is superficial and brutal. One more point here. Notice that the king takes advice from his young men, and it's horrible advice. No offense to young men. I am one myself. But not all advice from young men is good advice. Two really important points here. Proverbs, 14, or Proverbs 11 verse 14 tells us, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is great safety. Now, having an abundance of counselors is great. But who those counselors are is vital. We need to have older, wiser, godly, experienced saints speaking into our lives, not just young men. You've heard me say this before. You'll hear me say it again. But this church needs older, wiser, godly men and women for us to be healthy. We need your prayers. We need your input. We need your advice. We need your lives as models to us. Again, no offense to young men, but if that's all we've got advising us, we're in trouble. And I'll just add that God is answering this prayer abundantly in the last year in bringing many of you to this church. Second, as we're thinking about this, I want to raise the issue of influence. Who is influencing you? That's a huge question. Who is influencing you? The king's influencers, both in chapters 1, 2, and 3, lead him to a horrible decision, don't they? Who is influencing you? I've shared this before, but I think it's so helpful. It's this thing called the wisdom pyramid, where it starts with the Bible, God's word at the base of it. That should be the foundation of, of what's influencing us. God's word. And then the local church, God's people, who are also reading God's word, giving us wisdom, giving us advice. Then nature and beauty, books, the internet, and then at the very top, the smallest piece, social media. We often have that inverted, don't we? 
and rely on social media as our primary influence in how we think about things, how we do things. Who influences you most? If it's the culture and the internet, I want to plead with you this morning to reconsider. You're on thin ice. There's so much more that can be said about this, but we've got to keep going. Who you let influence you matters for good or for bad. That's what I want us to see. Let's keep going. Verses 5 and 6. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So we're now introduced to a new character. One might call him one of the heroes of our story. And we learn a couple of interesting facts about him here, don't we? I mean, if you don't already know the story and you're just reading along, this, this can seem kind of random, right? Up to this point in the story, we've been talking about the most powerful man in the world. And you stop and tell us about this guy? Why? Well, this is great storytelling. The author's trying to get us to pause and zero in on these characters. He's saying, keep your eyes on this family. They're going to be important to the story. So, what does the author tell us? First, this guy's a Jew. Now, when you read Jew in this story, think people of God. This guy is part of God's people. But he's in Susa, the citadel. What's he doing there? Well, we already mentioned this in chapter 1, but by this point, God's people had already been given permission to go back to Jerusalem. But Mordecai is still there in Babylon. He must have read Jeremiah 29. Verses 6 through 7, which says, When they're in Babylon, that they're to take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. He must have read that. He must not have read the verses right after that. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 14. says, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, meaning Jerusalem. Verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So there he is. A Jew in the citadel, apparently in some kind of civil service, working for the king and the kingdom. But don't miss his name. While he is a Jew, he has a strange name. Mordecai. Which is a pagan name. Meaning... Man of Marduk. Man of Marduk. Marduk, by the way, was the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon. 
I'll come back to this in a bit. We learn that he's a Jew. He has a pagan name. We also learn that he's in the lineage of Kish. Who's that? 1 Samuel 9, verses 1 through 2. says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. Kish is King Saul's father. Mordecai is his descendant. We won't do anything with that today, but file it away in your mind for next Sunday. He's a, a lineage, he's, he's a descendant of King Saul. So Mordecai, he's a part of the people of God. He's living in a pagan world with a pagan name as an exile. And there's more. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So Mordecai has essentially adopted his cousin. He brought her up and took care of her, protecting and providing for her. In this, we learn something important about him, don't we? He cares about someone other than himself. How different from the king, right? This certainly isn't the main point of the text, but isn't adoption amazing? Think about where Esther may have ended up in this cruel world with no one to care for her or no one to give her advice. God so clearly uses adoption and Mordecai and Esther's life to carry out his plans. And if this idea of adoption, if it sparks something in you, please come talk to us. We'd love to tell you more about Foster the City. Uh, Melissa Forgner, where are you? Right back there. Talk to Melissa. She would love to tell you more. The Davises would love to tell you more. Fostering and adoption are crucial gospel ministries. And we as a church are all in on that. Back to the, the text. Verse 7. Here we're also introduced to our second, you might call her, heroine. Hadassah. That is Esther. She has two names. The first, a Hebrew name meaning Myrtle. The second, a Persian name meaning Star. Like Mordecai, her Persian name, Esther, comes from a pagan deity, the goddess Ishtar. And here's what I believe the author's trying to show us. These characters, Mordecai and Esther, they're wrestling between two worlds. They're God's people, but they're living squarely in a pagan environment. This is why we can't airbrush this story. There's real tension there. There's real darkness. And these characters are living right smack dab in the middle of it. They're far from home as exiles, in a place that's hostile to their beliefs. Does that seem relevant to you this morning? It does. This is our place as Christians in the world. Look what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 12. 
1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, notice he says when, not if, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Sojourners, exiles, this world is not our home. Similarly, Jesus' words in John 17 tell us that we're to be in the world, but not of it. That's the challenge that our hero and heroine face. That's the challenge that we face today. How do we live in this dark world as sojourners and exiles? Christianity is quickly becoming the minority view in our country. The ways of the empire are quickly becoming the majority view. Christians must learn to take the minority view and to stand firm on it, all the while living in a majority world. So, Esther is an orphan and part of the people of God living in a dark world. But we learn something else about her, too. Look at verse 7 again. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Two quick comments here. Number one, when we read that, knowing what kind of women the king's rounding up, we already know without having to read any farther that he's going to pick her. She's going to be taken away and abducted. Second, even this description of Esther isn't outside of God's sovereign control. Psalm 139, starting in verse 1. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And in verses 13 and 14, he says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you see that? God formed Esther and knitted her together in her mother's womb. She was fearfully and wonderfully made. He's sovereign. He's, he's responsible for even how Esther looks. He knows what he's doing. And here's the truth. The same is true for you and for me today. God is sovereign not only over your personality, but over what you look like. We live in such an identity and an image-conscious culture where everyone wants to look like someone else. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by the creator of the universe. Trust this morning that he knows what he's doing. Even more, we live in an age and a culture that's even confused when it comes to gender identity. 
every two years, there's this organization called Ligonier Ministries. And they do this study called the State of Theology, where they send out an interview questionnaire. In 2022, this year, 37% of evangelical Christians, it's not the world, this is 37% of evangelical Christians said that they agreed that gender identity is a choice. In other words, you can decide that God messed up and how he made you. You can decide that Psalm 139 that we just read isn't true. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't make mistakes in how he made you. Whether it's your gender, your personality, or your looks, you are fearfully and wonderfully made by the creator of the universe. Trust that he knows what he's doing. Let's keep reading. Verses 8 and 9. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace. And he advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Again, I have to point this out. These women were gathered. Esther was taken. This wasn't a voluntary sign-up for the king's contest. Yet, Esther seems to hit the ground running. She's playing the game. She wins favor with Haggai, takes the cosmetics and the food. Then, and the text tells us this twice, she keeps her identity as a Jew secret because Mordecai had told her to do so. Now, before we pass judgment here, see that the text itself simply doesn't, doesn't do so. While we are, as Christians, called to let our light shine and to not put it under a basket, there are wise and unwise ways to do this. In closed countries where, where Christianity is illegal, it would be incredibly unwise to walk around the streets in a Christian t-shirt or to have the Jesus fish on your bumper. It'd at best get you kicked out of the country and at worst killed. Esther will in fact reveal her true identity later in the story at just the right time. But here's what I think we're meant to see. First, it's legitimately dangerous to be a part of God's people in this story. Mordecai is probably wise for giving Esther this advice. Second, Esther is wise for taking counsel from her adoptive father figure. So, she's in the harem. She's winning favor. Mordecai is checking on her every day. Now, the author gives us some insight into how all of this works. Look at verses 12 through 14. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king, to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh 
and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Ashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Do you understand how awful this is? This is like the show The Bachelor, but on steroids. Night by night, the king summons a different beautiful young virgin to his bed and sleeps with her. Then he sends her out in the morning to the second harem for the women who were no longer virgins, where she will spend the rest of her life. Can you imagine the amount of shame that existed in that second harem? More on this later. Verse 15. It's Esther's turn. What's going to happen? Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Esther, who has already won favor with Haggai, knows that Haggai knows exactly what the king wants and doesn't want. So she listens to his advice. She goes to the king, and the text tells us that he loved Esther more than all the women. Now, this isn't necessarily love in the way that we think of it, in the Cinderella category. This same word is used of Amnon's lust for Tamar in 2 Samuel 13, verse 1. Esther has won the competition. The crown is put on her head. The same crown that Vashti was supposed to wear but wouldn't. And then a feast is thrown with gifts given. This isn't a Cinderella story, is it? So... What are we supposed to learn from this? If you didn't catch on, there are a lot of moral ambiguities in this text. I think the author wants us to see these. Should Mordecai have let Esther be taken into the harem? Or should he have resisted going down in a blaze of glory? Should Mordecai have told Esther to keep her identity hidden? Should they even be there and not in Jerusalem with the rest of God's people? 
How about Esther? The original readers of this book would have probably drawn some quick parallels between Esther and Daniel and Joseph. What do I mean? Well, let's read Daniel 1, verses 3 through 8. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish. Sounds familiar, right? Of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the king's wine that he drank. You see the similarities and the differences? Daniel was also an exile with two names, taken into the king's court. But he refused to defile himself with the king's food. Esther took the food and the cosmetics. Daniel made his Jewish identity abundantly clear. Esther concealed hers. How about Joseph? End of Genesis. If you remember, Joseph found himself in the home of Potiphar, a high-ranking Egyptian officer. And here's what the text says. Genesis chapter 39, verses 6 through 8 and 10 through 12. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused. Verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. After multiple refusals, Joseph gets framed and goes to prison for it. He's unwilling to compromise sexually, even a little. Esther, on the other hand, has premarital sex with an uncircumcised Gentile, which is clearly a violation of the Torah. What's my point? It's this. Both of our heroes in the story aren't so heroic. They're quite compromised. Yet... God still fulfills his covenant promises. Even more, God is the hero of the story. His plan is perfect when his people are not. That's what we're meant to see. The point of Esther, or, or any Bible story for that matter, isn't, look at these people, they're perfect, be like them. Karen Jobes, who's a commentator 
puts this so well. She says, it is virtually impossible to use Esther's behavior as a moral role model. She says, how would you use this episode from Esther's life to teach virtue to your teenage daughter as she stands on the threshold of womanhood? What message would she get? Make yourself as attractive as possible to powerful men? Use your body to advance God's kingdom? The ends justify the means? The exemplary approach fails here because the author does not intend to hold up Esther as a moral example to be followed. Esther is not an example to be followed. But God's perfect plan is perfect. God's plan is perfect when his people are not. Do you know that this morning? Throughout your life, Throughout my life, not all of your decisions were good and moral and righteous. You may have even blown it big time. But God is faithful. He can still use you to accomplish his purposes. You may be sitting there and thinking, God, use me? But I'm a nobody. And that's exactly who God uses time and time and time again in the Bible. Esther and Mordecai were nobodies. They were insignificant Jews living as minority exiles in a dark and broken empire. God uses the weak to shame the strong. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. Paul says, for consider, your for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God doesn't use Esther and Mordecai because they're perfect. He uses them because they're weak and he's strong. His hidden sovereign hand is moving even in the midst of a harem. Isn't that crazy? And this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus isn't like Ahasuerus. With help from Landon Dowden on these points, I want us to see some beautiful truths here. Consider this. Ahasuerus sought a beautiful, pure bride. But Jesus made us into one. Dowden comments that the gospel is not a love story in which a good-looking and experienced groom meets and falls in love with a radiant and pure bride. The gospel is alone a story in which a radiant and pure groom chooses to love and purify a wretched bride who has repeatedly given herself to the devouring love of the flesh, the world, and the devil. Unlike Ahasuerus, who took what was beautiful from others, Christ took us who were spiritually ugly and gave us his beauty. Amen. 
Jesus is not like Ahasuerus. Second, and finally, I want to return to that second harem, the harem of shame. Ahasuerus left the women he used with shame. But Jesus has taken our shame away. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, speaking of Jesus, says this. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus has both taken away our shame and made us beautiful. If you're a Christian here today, and you have sin in your past, even grievous sin, hear this truth. Rest in this truth. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, your sin is atoned for. Your shame is taken away. You've been made righteous. You've been moved from shame to an heir of God. Know that God can and will use you for his purposes. We live in a dark world and sometimes take part in its darkness. Yet, God still uses us to accomplish his plans and to bring light from the darkness. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, this also can be you today. Your sins can be forgiven. Your shame can be taken away through repenting and believing, through turning from sin and trusting in Christ. There's no one, and I do mean no one, too far gone for Jesus to save them. So come to him today. Let's pray. Let's pray.